I think there are like a few dimensions in the sort of multivariate analysis that leads to someone deciding, okay, I'm going to take this plunge and do something that feels really new and different and scary and try, you know, psychedelic medicine for the, for the first time. Um, one is just the, the level of pain is, is severe. Uh, so you know, mental health care is the number one public health care crisis, COVID notwithstanding, getting a lot worse because of COVID. Mm. Uh, Depression is the number one cause of disability worldwide. Suicide is the second leading cause of death in the U.S. for people under 35 and the fourth leading cause of death for people 35 to 55, skyrocketing addiction. <laughs> um, and so for a lot of people, this is just their number one problem or pain point in their life that they've struggled with for a long time. So there's a lot of activation energy to, to try something new. That is Dylan Bynan, and he's the founder and CEO at MindBloom. MindBloom is a mental health and well-being brand helping people to achieve personal and clinical breakthroughs with at-home clinician-prescribed psychedelic therapies. That's right. Maybe you might not know this, but there are companies out there now where you can connect with a doctor, get a prescription for a psychedelic, in this case, ketamine, take it at home, and get coaching and support and also work with other people who are also doing the same work to improve anxiety and depression, oftentimes with results that are way better than talk therapy alone. In this episode, we talk about how the model works. We talk about ketamine compared to antidepressants. He talks a lot about the science that has gone into backing ketamine as an effective therapy. We talk about what ketamine is like, what's the experience like, we talk about why psychedelic therapy is becoming so popular. And in this episode, we go deep into the benefits of this emerging model for mental health. I'm super excited to release this episode because we are all about better options. I don't know about you, but I want to have all of the options at my disposal so that I can make the best choices for my health, for my mental well-being, and for that of my family. And this is the future of mental health. This really is the cutting edge stuff that we need to know about. Um, really interesting guy, fascinating conversation. He's very open. Uh, he tells me uh, about his story, how he got into this line of work, why he founded MindBloom. And he asked me some insightful questions about some of the work that I do with my coaching clients around psychedelics. So I reveal a couple of things that I haven't revealed maybe on this podcast before. Uh, I want to hear what your thoughts are on it. If you like this content, drop me a line or hit me up on Instagram. It's real Sean McCormick, S-E-A-N. Or you can email me, Sean at SeanMcCormick.com and tell me, all right, Sean, we get it. Let's back off the psychedelics talk. Or, you know, hey, I really dig this. Let's go deeper. Thank you for, for providing this information. I, I'd love to hear from you, no matter where you are in the world. Um... Also, before we jump into this episode, I just want to say that we are on track to launch in January of the new custom health platform, Hale, previously known as the Virtual Biohacking Assistant. And I'm going to be talking a lot about it a lot more uh, as we go forward, but it's, it's just about ready and we've got some incredible companies on board with us. So look forward to that. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast and this episode. Tell your friends, share this with someone who is hurting mentally, who's someone who is in need of some better solutions. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, Dylan Bynan. Welcome everyone to the Optimal Performance Podcast. My name is Sean McCormick. I'm a life coach, performance coach, 
wellness entrepreneur, and it's my pleasure to bring to you every single week the world's leaders in the field of performance so that you can live your life at its most optimal level. Plus, cutting edge ideas so that you can stay ahead of the curve in an ever-changing world. Let's dig right in. We're here with Dylan Bynan, who is the CEO and founder of MindBloom. Dylan, welcome to the Optimal Performance Podcast. Thanks, Sean. Fired up to jam. Awesome. Uh, one question. Let's just start with the very, very basics. You know, um, what is MindBloom? Uh, MindBloom is a, a direct-to-consumer mental health and well-being brand uh, that's helping people achieve life-changing clinical and personal breakthroughs. Uh, with at-home psychedelic therapy. Uh, specifically, we use uh, we have a platform of psychiatric clinicians and psychedelic coaches uh, who are helping people access ketamine therapy uh, at significantly lower cost than the average in-person provider, uh, with significantly more care through you know one-on-one -on -one coaching, uh, group coaching, uh, and a lot of therapeutic content that's personalized and customized uh, for people throughout their journeys. Mm -hmm. What what sorts of populations of people do you think that MindBloom serves the best? Uh, so I started the company three years ago, and in that time, we've become likely the largest provider of clinical psychedelic therapy in the U.S. Uh, we're reaching over half of the U.S. population, treated thousands of clients, uh, you know, doing over a hundred thousand sessions a year at the moment. Mm. Uh, but who our clients are uh, has changed over time from what I thought they would be when I initially started the company. Uh, I'm, I thought even uh, despite following psychedelics uh, very, very closely as a true believer and evangelist for over 13 years, uh, that we were a lot earlier in this movement to bring psychedelics to the masses and to make psychedelic therapy, you know, not alternative, but mainstream. Uh, so early on, I thought our audience would be, uh, you know, people like us, <laughs> 25, <laughs> 25 to 40, uh, you know, called tech forward or health forward, you know, called maybe 70, 30 male, female, Tim Ferriss listeners, Joe Rogan listeners. Uh, and those are a lot of our clients, uh, but our average client is actually closer to 40 or 50 years old, uh, has struggled with anxiety or depression for 10, 20, 30 years, uh, has tried talk therapy, you know, a million times has tried, uh, Lexapro and Prozac, uh, and, a, you know, variety of benzodiazepams, uh, and just has never gotten the results that they thought they would get, you know, given that we live in the 21st century here, and seems like we should be able to solve this mental healthcare crisis. That's getting worse and worse. Uh, so that, that, that has sort of been a huge surprise for me, uh, is seeing that people are a lot more ready for these medicines. And we had thought, uh, because they've been in pain for so long and uh, the existing uh, sort of system has failed them for so long. Yeah, I can see that. I can see how for folks who, like you said, and we all know people like this that have been on, they've been interested in in growing personally, dealing with trauma, dealing with anxiety and depression. I mean, after the couple of years that we've had on this planet, you know, there's about to be a, a many, many more who are facing just sort of darkness that, that just walks around with them, fear and anxiety. And, and um, so 
I'm, I'm, I'm interested in, and fascinated by the fact that for people who have put time and money and energy to do that work for five, 10, 15, maybe 20 years, and they're like, man, I will try anything. Well, uh, I heard about this. I heard about the use of ketamine and now there's a structure to it. Well, I'll give this a try. So it's encouraging to me that, that people are, are finally turning around, um, and turning, turning over stones that, that, that maybe in the past they had prejudice for. I'm curious about what, what might change their mind? Like why, why would someone like my aunt Shelly decide to try uh, your service? What connect with mind bloom um, now? Like what, what do you think goes on for people? What have you heard from your, from your customers? Hmm. I think there are like a few dimensions in the sort of multivariate analysis that leads to someone deciding, okay, I'm going to take this plunge and do something that feels really new and different and scary and try, you know, psychedelic medicine for the, for the first time. Um, one is just the, the level of pain is, is severe. Uh, so you know, mental health care is the number one public health care crisis, COVID notwithstanding, getting a lot worse because of COVID. Mm. Uh, Depression is the number one cause of disability worldwide. Suicide is the second leading cause of death in the U.S. for people under 35 and the fourth leading cause of death for people 35 to 55, skyrocketing addiction. <laughs> um, and so for a lot of people, this is just their number one problem or pain point in their life that they've struggled with for a long time. Uh, so there's a lot of activation energy to, to try something new, um, which I think surprised a lot of people who you know, maybe aren't in that state. Uh, like, why would someone try this you know, really new and, and different thing? Uh, I think that a second thing is people trust people like them. Uh, and so every day there are more and more people who are more and more like people who haven't tried these medicines, uh, who have experienced, you know, their awesome uh, healing and growth potential. And those people are more and more openly speaking about it. So if your aunt Shelly heard from your uncle Tom, I don't know, <laughs> uh, you know, that he had tried it. Uh, and that it was the, like getting years and years and years of therapy in a month. It was a pleasant experience and felt safe. And uh, then, you know, they, your Aunt Shelly would be significantly more likely. Uh, I think a third thing that's making this movement happen uh, significantly faster than everyone had anticipated, including myself, uh, is that it is being um, sort of amplified uh, from incredibly trusted sources. So you look at like how quickly uh, cannabis was normalized. I mean, that wasn't, that was still pushed mostly by businesses and consumers who wanted it, which is, you know, I think great. Uh, but the psychedelic movement is being uh, promoted and being, you know, uh, talked about by people who are incredibly trusted. So uh, leading researchers, leading uh, research institutions like John Hopkins, uh, leading uh, sort of thinkers and intellectuals and writers like Michael Pollan and Tim Ferriss. Um, and as a result of that, we are now seeing this sort of second wave of people talking about it that is mainstream. It's, you know, Oprah, Dr. Phil, uh, and NPR, CNN, uh, people are hearing around in surround sound. And so I think that is creating a lot of trust very quickly for people that, you know, this is a normal solution or normal, you know, medication or treatment that they can, uh, you know, access that isn't, you know, doesn't have the stigma attached. Yeah. I think you're probably right about that. And, and that coupled with 
people like to do things that work, <laughs> you know, like cannabis works, CBD works. And if you've heard it from a couple of different people and you were skeptical because of the stigma around it, but then you tried it for the first time and you slept the best sleep that you've had in the last 10 years, like, oh, that works. And so when story after story comes out that, you know, psychedelic therapy done in a systematic way that that's, uh, that's accessible and effective, then, you know, the cream rises to the top, the stuff that works, uh, is the stuff that gets adopted and, and proliferated. Um, before we go into some more details around how mind bloom works, you know, I can't, I can't help, but notice, um, your youthfulness and your, your age. And I'm super curious about your, or your personal origin story. Like why, why this, why now, how is it that you, that you came, uh, unless you're, you know, 60 and you just look great. Like I am like, I'm, I happen to be 75, but I just, you know, take care of my body. <laughs> Drink it from the fountain of youth. Yeah. yeah. But what's, what's your, what's your origin story? Uh, I grew up in a working class family in Southern California. Uh, that was annihilated by mental illness. Uh, it's a big reason that I decided to start MindBloom, which is my third uh, venture-backed tech company now. Uh, I just saw the mental healthcare epidemic uh, front and center. Uh, my, my, uh, maybe the only person in my immediate family and like extended family who didn't have a major issue, fortunately, with uh, mental illness. Uh, my mother was severely mentally ill, so she had uh, schizophrenia. Uh, a variety of addictions, uh, grew up in a very turbulent home, and ultimately we lost her to homelessness for about 15 years uh, before she died of a drug overdose. Um, through those experiences, I saw firsthand that uh, when people have a huge mental health issue, uh, it doesn't just affect them individually, which is really tragic. It's, I mean, a lot of suffering. Uh, we, we literally cannot you know, help my mother despite our best efforts. Uh, but it has these massive second order consequences on their friends, family, community, and the work that they can go on and do in the world. Um, and so for me, uh, I was very fortunate that I discovered psychedelic medicine about 13 years ago. It was utterly transformational for me in my uh, you know, psychological and emotional development. Uh, I similarly would, wouldn't be who I am for me, but also who I am for others if it wasn't for these medicines. Uh, and so over the past 10 years, I built a couple other tech companies, one that was acquired, uh, one that I raised over $130 million at, that's the leader in its space, uh, while quietly having psychedelics being the thing where I most wanted to see this change in the world where people could access them and they were accepted. Uh, I am fortunate that I have friends who uh, have built some of the biggest consumer telemedicine companies like, like uh, Hims and Candid. Uh, I'd also serendipitously became a ketamine therapy patient through my personalized medicine physician, Dr. K and uh, Dr. Andrew Kibbert in, um, in New York, who's sort of like a, a, a mini Peter Atiyah. Mm -hmm. uh, and the stars sort of aligned that the timing was right, that I'd had a transformational experience with therapeutic ketamine that was prescribed to me and saw an opportunity to dramatically increase access by reducing costs for people. Uh, getting it to people in their homes where it was more convenient with a more sort of comfortable setting uh, and building a platform to help pe get people even better clinical outcomes and tr you know, magical transformational experiences, uh, which, yeah, sort of set this off. Yeah, cool. That's, uh, I love, I love hearing that. Um, 
well, let's talk a little bit. Let's let's talk a little bit more about the actual process. Um, can you sort of walk someone through? Because you can guarantee that there are hundreds, if not thousands, of people listening right now, um, thinking, "Man, this might be this might be the thing. This might be the thing that I've been looking for." Can you sort of lay out the the process soup to nuts? What people can can expect when uh, when they go to the website and 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 in uh, investigate this opportunity. Yeah. So, so the way I would think about it is psychedelic therapy is a completely new treatment modality. That's meaningfully different from something like talk therapy. Um, uh, our platform is alchemizing uh, both the psychedelic medication, uh, but also psychiatric care from licensed mental health care providers Um uh, coaching from uh, trained psychedelic guides who are you know, some of, uh, we think, the best in the world at helping people make sense of their experiences, interpret their experiences, and actually uh, integrate those experiences into actionable behaviors, both good and getting rid of the bad ones in their life. Uh, we also have sort of a headspace for psychedelic therapy app uh, that provides therapeutic content uh, for depression, anxiety, self-love, uh, music, meditations uh, that's personalized to each client. Uh, and whereas a uh, you know really awesome telemedicine platform is increasing access uh, to other treatments, like say like hymns or row, um, whereas you might only spend a few minutes, like six minutes with your provider to get access to medication, uh, we have a little bit more of a high touch model given psychedelic therapy where we're spending over six hours with every new client over six sessions to help them prepare for their experiences, meet with them after, do group sharing sessions, which can be really powerful um, to help people go through these experiences in a community, um, you know, all in the name of you know, driving these awesome outcomes for people that are you know, 10x better than talk therapy or SSRIs if those haven't been working for people. Yeah. Wow. Cool. Six hours. That's that just blows every other model out of the water. I mean, I can't, you know, I've, I've, I've talked to a lot of, you know, virtual, virtual health um, sort of remote health training. Um, and you're right. It's six minutes, 10 minutes, maybe an hour. It's really, I mean, it makes my heart feel good, <laughs> uh, to know that, that people who really do need help are actually getting that much time. So is that, is that part of their, uh, intake process? Is that six hours or is that sort of spread out over the, the actual, uh, medication being used as well? Yep. So there's, there is initial psychiatric evaluation, the psychiatric clinician to see if somebody is an eligible medical fit, uh, and then additional meetings as needed with the psychiatric clinician uh, to adjust the dosage. So people usually start low and then get titrated up to the optimal therapeutic dose for them to get them the you know, desired outcomes and, and experiences. Um, and then there are uh, sort of a few different ways that people are able to interact with their guide that they match with. Uh, so we help people match to the best possible guide for them. We have, um, you know, I think as of the time of recording, over like 150 clinicians and guides on our platform, providers. Um, and um, the guides will work with people uh, both before sessions to help them prepare, write out intentions. We send people this uh, really cool signature bloom box, we call it in the mail. It's like a like, fabric kit with uh, eye mask and notebook and uh, you know, guide to preparation and integration and, you know, place where they can store their medication that comes with it. Um, and then the guides will also work with people after each session 
to integrate those experiences. Uh, so as I said, to figure out like, what do I do with it? What does it mean? And how do I actually take this leverage, the neuroplastic state created by the medication and the insights that have come up and the emotional changes that have occurred to actually drive long-term you know, behavioral change and uh, life changes for me that are going to end up in, you know, be having a significantly higher baseline level of happiness. And we do those through one-on-one sessions, group sessions, and messaging. Uh, so really trying to meet clients like where they're at. Like some people don't want to get on one-on-one calls with guides. Some people like love messaging and want to get, you know, advice and content uh, and work with people through the application. Uh, and other people, you know, want to pop into multiple group sharing circles and hear about other people's stories and work in a group setting. Hmm. So it's sort of personalized to each patient. The thing that I love the most about, about mind bloom and the emergence of, of, of platforms like it is that there are increasing opportunities for people to go get in a plane and fly to go do ayahuasca somewhere. And they have this amazing experience, this opening, they do shadow work and we don't have to spend too much time on, on, on all that, but it's profound for them. And then they go home and their family is still there and their job is still there and their shitty friends are still there and all the bad food and all these things that are totally opposite from what they just experienced in the jungle. And what I really like about this model is that, and especially what you just said about the guides working on activation and integration is that, you know, anybody can go to Costa Rica and wow out for a week and then come back to their lives and be like, oh, this is such a letdown, you know, but what, but what you're talking about and this, and the service that you provide is like, no, 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 this is your life. The, the life that, the life that you live in the house that you live in with the job that you have, this is, this is what's really going on for you. We want to help you have these experiences that are going to help you transmute or process this stuff and also make the appropriate changes in your life while you're there. And I can keep, so that to me, as a, as a coach and, and someone who, who does this work too, it's like that, that's so fundamental to me now. And a lot of people kind of miss that. Can you, can you speak to the importance of that real quick? Yeah, it was interesting. So when, when we started the company, we looked at the clinical research around ketamine therapy and uh, I like, it's like, it's almost unbelievable that in these ketamine clinics, you give somebody an injection of ketamine in the arm in like a hospital room and just send them on their way, that it has significantly outsized clinical outcomes from SSRIs like, like Prozac. Uh, but it was, it was actually hard for me to even get to a belief that just medication would work because in my experience and from what I've seen over hundreds and hundreds of people before Mindbloom and now thousands and thousands of people through Mindbloom working with psychedelics is that what you do before, during, and after the experience is like so critical to the outcomes you'll get from the experience uh, that the idea of not preparing, not fitting the experience and not integrating it is bananas to me. (laughs) Um, And um, I think that one one of the interesting things about doing psychedelic therapy in a uh, clinical context, right, where our clients have anxiety, depression, and other mental health and well-being issues that they're coming for help with, um, is that a lot of people are coming to not do work, 
right? They're used to the medical system where you're essentially told, take this pill, right? Like here, come here, take this pill and it'll remove your symptoms. You won't feel bad anymore. Uh, but mental health issues are not a bacterial or a viral infection. Like it's a result. I mean, there are obviously some people have genetic issues and, you know, there could be underlying physiological stuff that's affecting your emotional and behavioral patterns. And those two, two things are really interrelated, of course. Um, but there are bad patterns that are happening, right? We have these like ruminative uh, patterns around maybe it's, you know, thought patterns that lead to depression or anxiety. Uh, maybe it's behavioral patterns like uh, addiction to smoking or social media or porn or gambling. Um, could be relationship bad patterns. Um, and a lot of clients come in because they want to you know, feel better. But once they get into this neuroplastic state and they're emotionally uplifted and they have through the psychedelic experience, this cognitive contents of consciousness come up. So it's very you know, introspective and they have insight and clarity into the changes they really need to make in their life. Uh, they're both in an emotional state, have sort of the uh, inspiration and uh, clarity of what to change. Uh, and they're also, because of the, what the medication does, ketamine and also other psychedelics like LSD and psilocybin, are in a neuroplastic state where their brain is literally primed to make healthier and new uh, synapse or uh, uh, yeah uh, connections between neuron synapses. Um, so I think for us, we're still at this stage with I think a lot of psychedelic medicine where uh, people are coming in because they you know, they want to have a breakthrough one and done, right? They want to have the epiphany. Oh, I'm cured. Wanna, yeah, exactly, exactly. They want the miracle cure, and that is cool. But what's cool about psychedelics, I think, is that the opportunity is actually to help people change their behavior long term. Uh, and if you told people that up front, you know, that might be a little scary for them. Like, hey, it's, it's, the psychedelic experience is going to be the, the beginning of your journey. It's like yeah. the first, the 10,000 step journey um, or to, you know, what's the, the a journey of like a million miles begins with a single step. I don't remember. I think it's Confucius. I don't remember the quote. Yeah. Uh, nobody wants to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> But once they go through the psychedelic experience, a lot of people are now ready to go on that journey and excited for that journey. And it builds the activation energy and mental state to go on that journey. Um, so I think we're still, yeah, we're still day one of figuring out like how to build these behavioral change programs to help people leverage psychedelic medicine to, you know, lose weight and quit smoking and improve their relationships and, uh, you know, improve their relationship to, you know, technology and, you know, all, all of these inputs into their mental health and well-being. Um, but that's one of the things that gets me really fired up and the opportunity I see. Yeah. And let, and let me ask you this. So, so, um, you know, a lot of sort of paradigms for psychedelic medicine are teaching talk therapists how to use psychedelics. Um, our model at MindBloom is a little different in that we have psychiatric clinicians who prescribe and oversee the medical care, uh, very you know, experts in ketamine and other psychedelic modalities, and coaches who are helping people uh, both you know, integrate and interpret their experiences, but also drive real like, behavioral change for people. Uh, and one of the reasons, reasons that our uh, clinical advisory team of some of leading experts in psychedelics and psychiatry uh, and technology uh, sort of leaned into this sort of platform uh, is because we thought there was this big opportunity to leverage this coaching modality, which I think is emerging in a big way, uh, which I believe sort of is a little bit more forward thinking, a little bit more action oriented, a little bit more 
say pragmatic, like in terms of sort of like concrete ways to change uh, and is a little bit more about holding people accountable and sort of supporting them along that change. Um, and so I'm curious as somebody who I know is, 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 you know, coaching as well, um, how you maybe use these medicines or think about or having viewpoints on using these medicines to help people, you know, actually get and enact behavioral change. Yeah. Well, I can't tell you how refreshing it is, how, uh, and, and nice to be asked a question when you're, when you're hosting. So thank you for asking me that, <laughs> giving me the soapbox for a minute. You know, I think it's a, there's a couple of, of really key things. And, and one of the key things is uh, letting go of old narratives. You know, the, the, the subconscious mind that we cur- that we sort of develop between zero and seven is what really, you know, Bruce Lipton says is, to, is 98% of the decisions that we make are based on this, this sort of pre-alpha, this theta state of consciousness when we're little tiny kids. And that's, we learn how to talk to each other. We learn values. We, we just sort of absorb this. And for most people, uh, oftentimes we're still operating on that subconscious mind state. You know, well, I like this or I'm this way or uh, that's bad or this is good. These sort of value judgments. And one thing that, that, uh, that, that psychedelics are really powerful for uh, is to, is to, give you the opportunity to see yourself in a different way. These agreements, these narratives that are just like, well, I'm this type of person. So that's just how I feel about this because this, I'm this type of person. And so like being able to, you know, Michael Pollan, literally change your mind, literally, literally change how you want to show up in the world is something that a lot of people just don't do, can't do on their own. You know, most people are not going to do, you know, self-hypnosis tracks before they go to sleep. They're not going to do, you know, EFT or tapping, you know, to help change their mind or change their conscious state. You know, they're not going to go float in float tanks, um, which is near near and dear to my heart. I started float tank centers here in, uh, in the Northwest. So people aren't, aren't necessarily going to, they don't have the tools to go do that. And so by working with a coach in, in combination with a psychedelic substance, you're taught how to do that, how to change the way that you're showing up uh, in the world, how to change the way that you talk to yourself, literally changing the language and seeing yourself into the future, in, in the version of the person that you want to build into. So I think that's first and foremost, a really, really important thing. Uh, I think I think the second thing is... Uh, like you said, is integrating a few of the insights that you get from that one or two or more frequent psychedelic experience, even if it's, even if it's minor or micro is to notice what's coming up for you to think about it, to talk about it, to analyze it say, Oh, well, I have a hangup about this thing in my relationship with my spouse. Uh, It came up and you know, I realized that I need to forgive them, right? And in order to, for us to move forward, I need, I need to forgive them. And then they kind of um, move on to the next flashy thing. And it's, that just sort of goes away. And when you can have someone that you're working with, like a coach that says, well, let's, let's dive into that a little bit. So forgiveness is fine, but what's the conversation going to sound like when you decide to actually make that change? When you want to make that change with that person in your life, with your spouse, what, how, how will you bring that up? What, what are some ways that you can communicate that that's important to you? Um, is, your, is the relationship fulfilling at all? 
like really confronting that stuff so that there's some action around it. Because again, talk therapy, gestalt therapy, fantastic for processing trauma also can become, you know, a hamster wheel. If, if, if it's not directed in, in some way, that's going to be productive and actionable with that accountability metric too. And, and for most people who are, um, uh, type a, you know, most of my clients are super high achieving people. You can convince yourself of anything, you know, you can convince yourself that that was a good decision. Yes. You should have fired that guy or no, that was a bad decision. Uh, you know, I should have, um, made this, this high level decision, super smart, highly effective people can just sort of talk themselves in or out of anything. And it's a superpower. It's what's part of what makes them, you know, really effective people. You know, I, I would, I would just assume, uh, Dylan, that you're in a position where you can, your, your brain works out, like works that stuff out really quick and you can kind of see the faults in your thinking, um, and make the best possible decision. So people who are either at a, at a high state of tension or anxiety or depression, um, their brain is all, it's like having a couple of drinks and not knowing you're drunk and forgetting the fact that your thinking is off. <laughs> uh, on the flip side of that, for people who are super high level, they can sort of justify their actions. Uh, and oftentimes justifying their actions of being an asshole or not being present for their kids. This is all for them. You know, I'm working so hard. It's for the, it's for the kids. Well, you're not, you don't see your kids. Your whole life is your work. So I think, I think the combination of just a little something that can perturb consciousness just enough to get a little bit of perspective and then make that part of an action plan um, is, is everything. I think that's where, that's where change happens. Processing trauma is great, but you've got to actually be heading somewhere. I hope that helped. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think it's interesting what you brought up around, uh, how easy it is to convince yourself of whatever the belief you've chosen is as you're talking about confirmation bias, right? When you have a belief, you will only see the data that supports that belief and you will ignore all other data, hmm. uh, right? The, the search engines are a fascinating engine for confirmation bias, whatever hmm. you Google, especially medicine, which is why t- maybe contributing to why 20% of Americans are literally clinical hypochondriacs. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's much worse now. Um, and then you, uh, pointed out another one about someone with their kids, which is, I think, relates like the fundamental attri- misattribution bias, which is that we tend to always think that uh, when we make a mistake, it's like bad luck. And when someone else makes a mistake, it's because they're uh, ineffective. Mm-hmm. And when we succeed, it's because we're really effective and you know we're, we're, we're studs. And when someone else succeeds, they got lucky. Or similarly, like if I cut somebody off driving, it's because I'm just in a rush this time. It's an exception. But when somebody else cuts me off, I'm like, that person is just a horrible human being. Yeah, right. <laughs> like their license. Uh, one of the things that has been most powerful for me in I think my like mental health and well-being development, in addition to psychedelic medicine, um, which I'm I think I'm really fortunate that I discovered by happenstance in college uh, is is like decision science or cognitive science is understanding like how the mind works and what biases we have. Yeah, I am like co- constantly throughout the day. I probably do like know, fifty times a day on average, uh, catching myself thinking a certain way or having a certain negative pattern, and then applying some sort of psychological technique to immediately like try to reprogram and train that. Yeah. Uh, So like an example might be if I find 
that I'm uh, down on like work or something, like what maybe like where we're at. We're going a little slower across like one vector. Maybe it's like brand marketing or developing uh, some content as part of our product. And I'm starting to ruminate on how bad it's going. Uh, I will do use a psychological technique where I look at a past version of myself, say it could be me one year ago, three years ago, five years ago. And be like, if you told that person that I was here in my career or here building this you know, dream company that's in my Ikigai with you know, 100 to almost 200 other people are just as mission obsessed as I am that one built for the rest of my life. Like, how would you feel? Like, oh, it's a dream come true. Yeah. Like, are you, what are you wanting about the other problem right now? That's silly. Yeah. Um, one of the uh, pieces of advice when people ask me about mental health that I give uh, that, you know, probably the most important, I think, uh, practice or behavior is just to decide that your happiness, your mental health and well-being is just a number one non-negotiable top priority. I think a lot of people have got, you know, a lot of people are increasingly or have gotten there around their health. Like, oh, diet and exercise is a number one negotiable, non-negotiable priority. Like it needs to come before work because it's actually an input into me doing a better job and being mm-hmm. a happy person. Uh, but I think we're still really far from people uh, making their happiness a man- number one non-negotiable top priority. Right. I think one of the reasons that it seems really fluffy when I, but I was, in, when I was in college, I discovered positive psychology. Um, unfortunately I went to college where the, one of the sort of fathers of the, of the field was teaching hmm. and opt in. Um, who was it? Uh, Seligman. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. He, um, yeah. So he's, he's what well, I think one of like the forerunners of the, of the field of study. Uh, I was getting a, uh, a minor in consumer psychology at a, a warden at Penn and with the psychology department and thought it looked interesting. Started learning about positive psychology, uh, started studying evolutionary biology and positive psychology, cognitive science, uh, and came to realize that I was like not happy. <laughs> <laughs> that I had all of these uh, you know, sort of uh, aspects of success, like friends, I was really successful in school, which, you know, double-edged sort of like working really, 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 really hard was being underdeveloped emotionally and underdeveloped in relationships um, and in social intelligence. Uh, but when I started reading positive psychology, I realized like my entire blueprint for how I was going to build my life was totally off if I believed the science of positive psychology uh, and that all these things I thought I was going to do to make me happy weren't going to make me happy. And the things I was currently doing, some of them were like spending a lot of time with friends and building lifelong relationships I still have today. Um but a lot of things were not. Uh, and that was a huge epiphany for me. I realized like, well, I can actually study how to become happy and then yeah. implement these things and make life decisions based off of them. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's, um, yeah. It's pretty, tough. Pretty- it's, it's tough because, because like to your point, you know, um, diet and exercise, nutrition, even sleep, people can be like, okay, I'm going to really, really focus on that stuff. Um, and, and, and that's, it's essential. And also they don't think about their, their sort of broad psychology, the way that they think about themselves, the way that they think about their day matters just as much as their, as the calories that they consume. And part of it is Western culture. Part of it is the uh, puritanical nature of the founding of this country. Part of it is just, you know, culture, not being your friend. This like, this, like, just go, 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 push, 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 push strive you and i are guilty of the same thing like we want to build cool things we want to help people and uh our happiness our relationships 
our sort of baseline um, level of well-being often gets kind of sort of thrown out the window because we want to keep driving. And, and I think, I believe strongly that psychedelics for thousands of reasons is, is the way for it to reach mass culture for us to really consider, are we doing okay? Like you're, you're crushing it, but are you doing okay? And that flip has to come with some sort of catalyst. And, uh, and so when I hear you talk like that, I'm just nodding my head because I think you're right. I think that we, we, we will, uh, I think we have started moving in that direction toward placing more import on general well-being. How are you doing? Like, psych- how are you doing psychologically? If you're fit, that's great. Sleep, great. But, it, but are you okay? I think it has to go there because what's it all for anyway, you know? Totally. Well, I think it's almost uh, un- like non-strategic to uh, go, go, go so much that you're exhausted. Like that might've worked if you were, you know, plowing fields all day and you were paid based on the amount of like wheat that you were able to cultivate and harvest. Um, but we are mostly knowledge. If you're a knowledge worker, then your output is like creativity. Your output is how much leverage that you can create in the world through, you know, technology and process and capital and code and media. And so if you are not sleeping and you're not taking care of yourself mentally, like your overall output is going to massively reduce, right? Mm, yeah. And so I wonder for some people, like I, I talked to, I mean, I'm, I've been guilty of it. Like I, I recently, we just completed uh, like a series B round of funding and I was probably sleeping like five or six hours a night for like the, we did in like a couple of weeks, but for like the, you know, four months that I drove the end to end process or the four weeks I did the end to end process. Um, and, you know, I grew up like playing football and, uh, you know, taking you know, every AP class and creating some of my own and like, it, you know, like the, the sacrifice and like the honor of wearing myself down, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's definitely not sustainable. And, uh, and, you know, there's like, a, it can be an intentional decision to do that at times to, you know, yeah. to, to Herculean feet to put something into the world. Uh, but you do see people who have are experiencing tremendous like burnout and I think it's reducing like their overall human capital. And I think if people can start to see that it's actually reducing your human capital, not increasing your human capital by burning yourself out, you know, that can be a big epiphany for people. Yeah. Well, and, and to make that even more accessible, even if you're not the CEO of a company or a founder or even a manager in the, in your job, that level of overwhelm, we all experience, you know, if you're working an hourly job um, to feed your two kids, that overwhelm comes in the fa- in the form of um, uh, badges and alerts on your phone. And, and it's a Herculean feat to go to, to work that job and then come home and make dinner, pick your kids up from school and just keep the train on the tracks. And so that level of overwhelm, you know, uh, I think, I think everyone's experiencing it. And nobody knows how to deal with it. Nobody knows the tools. And uh, so that, that awareness that, oh man, there might be diminishing returns on me being stressed out all the time, over anxious, trying to be perfect, you know? Um, no, it's, it's, it's interesting. I, I, I think, I think the, I think the, I think things are shifting and oftentimes, you know, a crisis helps act as a catalyzer for people to make major changes and, and to build better models. You know, the Bookminster Fuller quote is, you know, 
um, don't try to change current systems. This is par- paraphrased. Don't try to change current systems. Build better models that makes the that make the old models obsolete. And if we can all do that for ourselves, an individualized level, if we can do that in uh, in industry, uh, then everybody wins. Uh, I want to I want to sort of zero down. Yeah, go ahead. Ask you one question. I think maybe you'd be interested. In it. So I think one of the things you're sort of touching on is the concept of like you know, addition by deletion versus addition by addition. <laughs> um, so, you know, you'll have uh, more, you know, energy and effectiveness, uh, like fulfillment if you actually do like less things in your life. But obviously it's very, very, very hard to create space when the universe is, not the universe, the, the world and culture is bombarding you mm-hmm. with obligations and stimuli, many of which are, you know, addictive. Uh, so, so like some things I do, their addiction by deletion is I've had my phone, uh, which is a cheap Android phone in black and white for yeah. like at least eight years. I only have one screen of apps and they're all, you know, boring utility apps. Um, I don't have Instagram. I don't use Facebook, uh, no social media, uh, which might not be great for mind bloom, but keeps me focused <laughs> and happy. And it's, I can get away with it as a mental health founder. <laughs> um, what are, and I, there's a lot, there's a lot more, but what, what are some of the things, and I almost think like, you know, what should you stop doing for your health is like a more interesting and important question than what should you do for your health? Um, you know, diet would be a great example of that. more like what you shouldn't eat than like what you should eat. Yeah. What are, what are some of the things that, um, you know, you've deleted or, uh, removed from your life or schedule, uh, or habits that have been really impactful for you? Yeah. Well, every, every time that I go for, uh, to go sit and do plant medicines and do ayahuasca, there's a, there's a diet beforehand, which is basically a, what's that? (laughs) Yeah. La dieta. (laughs) Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a dopamine fast essentially. So it's like, you know, no, no pork, no salt, no garlic, no sex, no drugs, no rock and roll. You know, you've got to, you've got to cut out all these things that stimulate your dopamine so that you can be ready for what you're about to do. And for, uh, for a lot of people, that's really important. That is, the, that is addition, addition by subtraction that we're so focused on doing that we forget about being. And sometimes I, I, built, I built a short course called the, the Full Moon Reset, which was it's uh, it's 16 or 17 days. It's a half sidereal cycle. So it's new moon to full moon. And in that 15 or 16 days, it's no social media, no sugar, no t- no TV, only use the computer unless it's like essential for work. And, and what happens is people on day two or three in the middle of this like sugar detox, they start like journaling and playing Uno with their family and like picking up a guitar and doing all of these things that they, that really feed their soul, that they really enjoy doing. That's something that they love to do, but they're so distracted by all the other input in their life that when they get back to that, you feel like a kid again, you feel youthful, you've got more energy. You go to bed at a reasonable time because you're not watching game of Thrones for the fourth time. You're like actually pushing, putting the, putting your foot on the brakes um, hopefully creating more GABA in the process to like slow down serotonin comes up, dopamine sort of falls away a little bit and you just sort of reset all of these different habits that you do. So that that's a massively powerful thing. And everybody can do that. Take a, you know, take a week off of Facebook and just see how much better you sleep and how much more present you are 
for your family. Another thing um, is, is to have hard conversations. The, the conversations that, that you have, I obviously I focus a lot on relationships and in my coaching. Um, if there are hard conversations to be had that you've sort of been avoiding for a while, you know, you really need, you've, there's this one thing that you've kind of been sitting on, you didn't want to bring it up. You got to have that conversation sooner than later. You know, um, you've got to, you've got to be able to work through conflict with the people that you see every day. <laughs> like you have to be able to do that. Um, and most people just, they don't have the tools for it. They don't, they don't have the words to use in, in, um, nonviolent communication. They don't have the, they don't, they don't know how to do, we don't know what to do with their hands. They don't know how to, how to engage in that way. And so more tools, more suggestions leads to people, you know, being aware that they can make choices and that sense of agency goes up and then they take more control of their life. They're more, they're more fun to be around. They're more relaxed. Yeah. It's, it's essential. I think that the removal it has to start there. When you start removing things from your normal every day, you just, you know, cracking another beer because it's Tuesday at six. And that's when you start to, you know, that's when you have your first beer, you know, a joint every night or whatever, just because that's what you do. When you stop doing that, then like you, you come back online, you get more in touch with who you are. So uh, on, on, on the topic of uh, sort of healthy conflict and, and direct communication, uh, have, have you read Crucial Conversations? I haven't. Uh, so crucial conversations is, I don't know, it's in our, it's on our, uh, you know, our shortlist mind bloom library, uh, for the, for the company. Uh, it's probably one of my most recommended business books. Uh, most people, you know, founders, execs, I recommended to kind of like scoff, like I'm gonna read a, a book on having conversations. Uh, and I have yet to recommend, I probably recommend to like hundred people who've read it and I've yet to recommend it to a single person who hasn't come back to me and said, this book like completely changed how I, you know, especially at work, but also, you know, in crucial conversations with friends or, you know, especially close family members, like how I have these conversations, like how I think about them philosophically, like how I, you know, the frameworks I have in my mind for how to have them. And then, you know, the, the tactics about how to have these really challenging and direct conversations. Yeah. You've got to have tact. You've got to have the tactics. I'll definitely check that out. That sounds, that sounds yeah. also, right up my alley. Also a really big fan of the 15 commitments of conscious leadership. Uh, if you've heard of it, it's, yeah. uh, three books we give everybody when they start at mind bloom as part of their welcome package. Uh, and it's created, you know, this really powerful framework to think about how to create a more conscious company culture here, uh, which we have a pretty radical company culture, you know, started the company a few years ago, like a year before COVID remote first and asynchronous. Uh, and everyone here is, you know, not just mission obsessed with psychedelics, but trying to do the best work of their life, like a pro business mm. athlete. Uh, so it's very sort of intense and the you know, talent bar is really, really high. Uh, but we're also trying to build a company where people can you know, be a little more aware and mindful and build really meaningful relationships. So trying to balance building a, you know, top tech startup backed by, you know, the top VCs in Silicon Valley with top you know, uh, healthcare and technology and design exec executives and leaders uh, with also, you know, being on our own journey and path. Uh, that's been a, a really great um, sort of artifact for us to all to, to rally behind. Oh, that's We've awesome. Great stuff on, on, on communication as well. Cool. Yeah, I'll definitely check that out. Um, why ketamine? Well, you could have, you could have, you know, you could have, could have pulled the, could have pulled the LSD card. You could have pulled the, the psilocybin card or, Kratom or whatever, like why? Why start with ketamine? Uh, 
the, I mean, the simple reason is that ketamine is the only prescribable psychedelic therapy in the U.S. Uh, so there have been some decriminalization efforts with some uh, other uh, medicines uh, in, in some places, but that still doesn't allow you to, you know, to, to commercialize and, and to help distribute it to people at scale and help build a product and platform to help people get the most out of these experiences. Um, so one is other than like building, say, psilocybin retreats in Jamaica or Amsterdam, it was sort of the, what I saw as the only uh, viable like option to build a psychedelic medicine company. Uh, the uh, second answer is that one, well, I guess there's a couple answers. One is I had become a ketamine therapy patient myself uh, through my personalized medicine physician, Dr. Andrew Kibber, that I mentioned earlier, his practice. Uh, and it was like at the exact same level of sort of transformative as a lot of other psychedelic medicines and therapies that I had done you know, over the past 13 plus years. Um, so I was just stunned with how, when it's done in this therapeutic setting with like an eye shade laying down, like going inward, writing intentions, like, you know, like you do in a ceremonial context with you know, ayahuasca or, or some other entheogen, uh, how potent it was and how great the insights were and how great I felt. Um, um, and then once I started really researching ketamine therapy, which blew my mind that this was available in the U S and I didn't know about it as someone who'd been following and donating to uh, psychedelic research and science for a long time. When I started doing the research, started seeing that there was uh, all of this clinical studies. There are more clinical studies on ketamine than every other psychedelic medicine combined because it's been an FDA approved medication in the seventies. Um, and, and we, I saw was that the clinical research is definitive that it is like 10 X more effective than the other existing treatment options in our mental health care system. So for instance, uh, SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors like Prozac or Lexapro, uh, they're prescribed to people as like the frontline treatment for antidepressants. Um, uh, they have a clinically effective result 40 to 47% of the time. They take less than half. They take six to eight weeks to work. And in that time, like you don't even know if it's going to work. Uh, they have horrendous side effects for over 50% of people like weight gain, sexual dysfunction, insomnia, severe anxiety, sometimes suicidality. Uh, and uh, they have to be taken daily. And so a lot of people don't want to get stuck on a daily medication like SSRIs with their big withdrawal symptoms if you try to get off of it. Uh, ketamine therapy has a clinically effective result when just given to somebody like an injection in a hospital room, like no therapy whatsoever, uh, 65 to 70% of the time. It works right away uh, as, you know, at mind blowing, we're seeing less than 5% of clients have any side effects. They're pretty light side effects. Um, and it can be taken periodically and as needed and like really personalized to, you know, somebody based on where they're at in their mental health and well-being journey. Uh, and then a mind bloom by giving people, you know, therapeutic content and coaching and actual psychiatric providers who are doing their care versus like an anesthesiologist or ER doctor who's just doing the dosing. Uh, we're getting people a clinically effective results, uh, like 88% of the time. So wow. this is rise with 10 X, literally 10 X or 10% less frequency of side effects. And the side effects are way less worse or way less severe. Um, working immediately versus six to eight weeks. So you just look at it and you're like, okay, well, you mentioned earlier when there are really, really great products, like those proliferate into the market. Like distribution matters, but yeah. great products also, like the truth comes out. So you, you look at number one public healthcare crisis, 
existing treatment options are way, way worse than people think in terms of their effectiveness. Uh, and then you meet a lot of psychiatrists and you learn that they also think that like, they're disappointed that they've been given this like hammer and chisel and go told to do brain surgery on people. Mm. Like they're frustrated as hell with the outcomes they're getting their clients that they want, really want to help. Uh, and then here's this new option that uh, is safe, way more efficacious, but it's a little new. It's a little scary. It's really expensive for unseen, un, un, uh, <laughs> uh, hard to understand reasons. Maybe it's just really early in the market, or maybe just people haven't figured out how to get it to people at scale, which we, ha- which, you know, we, we have helped do, uh, and just seemed very clear that the truth would get out. Um, I mean, we're, and I'm certainly not like a ketamine purist. Like my life was first changed by MDMA, uh, and, you know, ketamine, you know, is now at like the, you know, tail end for me of my journey with different psychedelic therapies by sleep, you know, I'm a mindful client myself and find it incredibly eff- effective, um, but I'm, you know, and the whole team are just as excited, if not more excited about, you know, MDMA being FDA approved in late 2023 or early 2024, psilocybin a year or two after that, uh, and just doing whatever we can to help, uh, you know, radically increase access to these treatments by making them more approachable, affordable, and available to people at scale, uh, and to build product across content and software and coaching and, uh, and services that help people get even more powerful and long-lasting you know, experiences and, and changes from these experience from uh, these medications. Um, yeah. Yeah. Can you describe what the effect of ketamine is? Uh, the classic uh, describe an indescribable experience. <laughs> yeah, here, just just wrap it up. Just real, just keep it short though, Dylan. I know. I just keep just real, just just to explain this massive consciousness experience. <laughs> uh, so I think there's I think there's like maybe three buckets that I put the experience in. Um, so one is like the physical, what it feels like for people. Of course, it depends on the dosage, but ketamine lasts about an hour. Uh, mind bloom is taken sublingually. So people mm. dissolve little tablets under their tongue and spit it out and then go on a you know, 45 minute to an hour and 15 minute experience. Um, uh, physically, it can feel like a little warm, euphoric, like uplifting. Uh, and people get these really deep sense, senses of gratitude, of connection to you know, loved ones or other people or world or universe um and can have these feelings of sort of uh of wholeness and unity and like like everything is right in the world um uh cognitively people uh, on ketamine will have um sort of these these like insights that'll come up so ketamine works on your glutamate system which is a little different than most psychedelics which generally work largely on your serotonin system and hmm. uh, cuts off your glutamate system. So it's an, it's an antagonist. Um, during that experience, you're sort of disconnected from your mind and your body. So people can have these out-of-body experiences that both feel physically out-of-body, but also are sort of dissociative where people um, sort of cognitively can break down all of your associations to things and then rebuild them from the ground up. So a lot of people will say that ketamine therapy feels like uh having a child's mind again like everything Mm -hmm. seems new and fresh and they can think through things again from first principles uh it also because it acts in the glutamate system uh works on the memory quite a bit so people oftentimes can have uh memories come up 
from their childhood or memories that, you know, they hadn't remembered in a long time. Uh, and we'll also have, you know, sort of, uh, deep, like in the back of their mind, like visuals, um, of, you know, scenes or situations or, or things that can be really meaningful for people. Uh, and then I think the, the third aspect is the neuroplasticity is that uh, ketamine, um, you know, when done in this sort of, uh, sub anesthetic, uh, dose. So it's like one 20th to one fifth of what a child gets in the ER, like every day in the U S uh, it seems to uh, secrete a brain derived neurotrophic factor BDNF, which is like sort of a, it's a protein that's sort of like HGH for the brain. Uh, when, when BDNF is secreted, it creates this state of synaptogenesis or the brains is more able to create connections between neurons, uh, or between brain cells. And so this can persist for like three to 14 days after based on some neuroimaging studies. And so people have this enhanced sense of creativity and lateral thinking, um, not just because they had this contents of consciousness come up, but because the brain is like literally primed to create new connections. That's like new patterns, new behaviors, new ways of thinking, new ways of being. Uh, and so for a lot of people, they're emotionally uplifted from the experience. They have this insight from the experience, uh, and then they're able to, you know, actually go out and have the motivation, energy, and clarity, and like brain state to make changes in their life from it. Um, but you know, it's hard to explain what it actually feels like mm -hmm. uh, without, you know, without without doing it. Yeah, yeah. I, I knew that that was an unfair question, but I had to I had to throw it out there anyway because you know I think I've never been asked that before, by the way. Ah, good. <laughs> good. <laughs> Point of pride. I think a lot of people, you know, the same, we made sort of the, the cannabis correlation earlier. They sort of think, you know, well, but it's, you know, it's going to, it's going to make me paranoid and, and I don't want that. And, and, and the education is such an important part, especially for psychedelics is like, well, this is, this is kind of what it, it could feel like for you. And when people kind of get over that, that hump, they, they hear it enough times like, oh, this is going to be a, you know, sort of subtle to medium type of experience. You're going to feel good. You're going to feel out of your brain a little bit. Like, you know, you're going to feel, you know, um, some calmness, some warmth. You're going to, things are going to be interesting to you again. I think we need to keep hammering on these, on these things as hard as it is to, 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 to describe what some of these psychedelic states are we just have to keep hammering on it so that so that we can get the point across so that they can so we can sort of break down that demonization that you know the war on drugs did and dare did for all of us you know i mean i'm 38 i read my dare essay at the at the graduation i was a proud you know proud dare graduate as a as a sixth grader and uh and i thought that weed was the same as heroin sure we all did. Ecstasy puts holes in your brain. Uh, acid will uh, mutate your chromosome and your, your kids will come out, uh, you know, uh, mutated. Yeah. <laughs> um, or, um, or yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, but there's still like little, little myths too, right? Like for instance, um, I mean, how, how frequently have you heard somebody be like, oh, I can never do ayahuasca. Like I hate vomiting. And you're like, well, yeah. the vomiting is a part of it, but it's like a small part, you know, it's yeah. like a small, painful part, but it's like not going to be your whole experience. You're not going to be nauseous. I mean, maybe you will, but most likely you won't be like nauseous the whole time. Like it's, uh, it's, you know, it's hard to, I don't know if you can even get there, right. By like, like helping to educate people 
I almost think like just the level of activation energy, like the level of either pain or motivation Mm -hmm. uh, or trust that's built up by, you know, some of that social proof. You have enough people who you really believe in and trust in, whether you know them or they're people you follow uh, who are telling you that, you know, this will be good for you. Yeah, this is going to be good. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, Where do you see, this is a super broad question, but it's a question I like to ask people in the psychedelic space. Um, where do you see the industry going? Like, what does the future of psychedelic therapy look like in your mind? Uh, interesting question. What's the future of psychedelic therapy look like? Um, I think some things that won't change are that people will want access to like the most personalized care where they're finding the right provider for them, the right medication for them, the right treatment modality for them, uh, and having increasingly personalized experiences that match the right person to the right type of, you know, program, uh, is, is going to be really important. Uh, people are going to consistently want more access. So they're going to want it in home. They're going to want it affordable. Uh, and they're going to, to, you know, want it yeah, available to them. Um, I also think that people are always going to want to work with really, really high quality facilitators. Uh, talk therapy is really interesting that there's a lot of uh, conflicting clinical research about the efficacy of talk therapy. Uh, there's a lot of research that seems to indicate that, uh, like only 5% of talk therapists drive outcomes for people and 95% don't. So working with the best talk there, one of the top 5% of talk therapists, you know, that will work and 95 don't. Uh, there's also research that shows that the number one indicator of whether or not someone will like w- get outcomes from a talk therapist or retain with a talk therapist is just how much they like the person. <laughs> so like how likable is the talk therapist and how much do they feel connected to that person? Uh, so I think people are always going to want really high quality facilitators and they're going to be really rare and uh, they're going to want a sense of connection and liking with those facilitators. One of the things I think is going to change a lot, those are things I don't think will change. One of the things I think is going to change a lot is I think right now the current paradigm is that uh, we're just going to like sprinkle psychedelics on some talk therapy practices and like that's psychedelic therapy. Mm. I mean, there are definitely training programs and people are developing a lot of awesome one. MAPS is a great training program. There's there's Fluence. There's um, a lot of people, you know, who who are working on this. Uh, where a lot of them to me look a little bit like uh, either talk therapy plus psychedelics or like talk therapy, a little different plus psychedelics. <laughs> mm, yeah. And I, I just think we, we have uh, discovered like nuclear energy for the mind. Like we've discovered how to like split the atom. Uh, and you know, there's a, maybe it makes sense that in the seventies, everyone freaked out and we made psych, you know, psychedelics legal. Like that's scary. It's dangerous stuff. Um, We've discovered, you know, new called like nuclear fission, right? But we haven't figured out yet how to like harness it like consistently and safely like nuclear power plants. Uh, and so I think the future of how psychedelic therapy is administered will actually look a, a, a lot different. Um, and I think the promise of it is that because it's a neuroplastic agent, we can help create the conditions for people to drive actual behavioral change. Uh, and, you know, one of the things I'm excited about is working to build like the behavioral change platform and programs around psychedelics uh, to help people, you know, get that outcome. Um, and I, yeah, I just think it's going to look a lot different than, you know, than, than, than how it's done currently. 
Yeah, I I like I like that idea that you just said about talk therapists who did MDA MDMA one time and now they're helping people, you know, through MDMA sessions. It's like, well, here, try this. We'll combine these. We'll see if this works. I've done it once or twice. They don't have, they may not have systems. They may not have models. And I think you're right. I think it has to look a lot different. Um, Let me ask you this. Do you think it's important that the talk therapist or coach be experienced with that specific substance in which they're working with that patient or client? Um, I think it would, it's pretty odd to not be (laughs) (laughs) like, how can you possibly help guide somebody through this alternate dimension of a psychedelic experience, all of which are very different if you have never been in that state. Yeah. It does not really compute. Yeah. Yeah. That would, be, that would be a major red flag for me as a patient, not as the CEO of mind bloom, but as a, as a, uh, you know, a evangelist or, or patient myself um, to work with somebody who tells me that they're going to help me get the most out of, you know, this treatment, but they've never experienced that. How could then they're the, like, you can think about, um, one, one, one framework I think about for learning, which is incredibly simple, is like you combine theoretical knowledge with like experiential knowledge, right? So if you just like read business books all day, but you never try to build a business, like you're probably not very good at building a business. Yeah. And you can you know, try to build a business all day, but if you never like, I don't know, if you never read anything or learn anything or have mentors, like you're probably leaving a lot on the table. Uh, so you're essentially saying, what do you think about someone who has all theoretical knowledge of psychedelics and no experiential, like, uh, you know, wisdom about psychedelics, like probably not great. Yeah. Uh, psychedelics are probably one of the rare things where, well, not rare. There's some things probably where like the experiential matters way more and somewhere like you actually don't need as much experience, a lot of theoretical uh, and between the two, but yeah, you know, probably, I don't know, maybe, it's, maybe, maybe not like you could probably, if you gave someone a really great program and structure for how to p- help people prepare, go through it and integrate, even if you've never done it, but you were just following it, like you probably get people, not bad outcomes. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it could be better than not doing it at all. Right. Yeah. I, I, I hold out hope and not to go into, into the woo too far, but I hope and I believe that there are increasing numbers of especially millennials that incarnated in this life in this time to help change the world, to help change the planet, to help us usher into this next evolution of of this plane of existence. You know, millennials are more concerned about climate change, they're more concerned about equality, they're more concerned about social change because they want to create a better world. And I'm confident that millennials and increasing numbers of people are interested in getting into this type of work, into coaching, into therapy, into psychedelics, because it makes sense to them. They understand that this could really be an excellent combination. And so I think that there's going to be a number of incredible practitioners and some of them are my friends and some of them, you know, I've just sort of met online who are like, you know, I really want to help people. 
I'm also super interested in sustainability, gardening, psychedelics, breath work. You know, I've read all the books. I'm, you know, student of the Steiner and Young and Joseph Campbell, and I love, you know, helping people. So I think that there's going to be a, a whole generation of people who are stepping up to the plate to try to uh, combine uh, things that work, in this case, psychedelics, with, uh, with stewardship, with guidance, with people who, are, who really can make a difference and are equipped to. That's where I'm at. I'm fired up. <laughs> uh, well, uh, you know, on that note, I'll get my, my plug in. You know, we at MindBloom are the nation's largest provider of clinical psychedelic therapy. Uh, we are extremely well capitalized by the top VCs in, in Silicon Valley. Uh, we have a stunning team of people building this really, uh, conscious company culture that's both remote first and, and asynchronous. Um, and we are hiring hundreds of people over the next couple of years and looking for people just as mission obsessed as us, whether you're, uh, interested in being a psychedelic guide or you're a psychiatric clinician, or you work in, you know, engineering, product design, marketing, operations, uh, we would love to hear from you. <laughs> nice. Good. Um, what, what have I not asked that you either think should be uh, covered or that you, that something that maybe you thought of earlier that, that didn't come out? Is there anything that, that you feel like is really essential that I, that I haven't gotten into yet? Hmm. Um, I'm curious how you discovered these medicines. So you said you, uh, you were, you were into dare. I get it. I used to, <laughs> I grew up, I mean, I grew up with a, like a very, very, very serious drug addict in my home, my mother. Uh, and so had strange people. She was in and out of rehab. Uh, every time she came back with rehab, it was scarier because then she came back with more, more people who were just as sick as her. Um, and so because of that, I was the last person in my peer group that I knew to, um, to, to be open to, uh, you know, to substances mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, I knew something needed to change with MDMA and it, I knew something needed to change for me, uh, and, uh, had been reading about MDMA and had the opportunity and a trusted friend to, you know, to encourage me. And it was life-changing for me. And that was a huge, huge catalyst. Uh, both my journey with psychedelics and in my life overall. How, how did you come to, uh, you know, get into psychedelic medicine and make it a big part of your practice in life? Yeah, well, I I grew I grew up um, meditating. My my folks taught me TM when I was twelve, and wow. so I had this framework. My my father is a behaviorist, sort of a classic Skinner. Um, operant conditioning behaviorist. And my mom is, you know, more of a, a free spirit. And the, the diagnosis of ADHD at 11, in uh, my parents decision to not put me on any medication, um, but rather give me tools that would help me calm my body and calm my brain and keep me from bouncing over the walls, you know, highly capable, highly energetic, very physical. Uh, I had uh, an early exposure to non-normal states of consciousness. If you consider meditation, you know, non-normal. 
And so that laid a foundation for me that I wasn't my body. You know, I was just, I have in a body, but I wasn't this body that I could have, uh, I could have control over my heart rate, over my vibration, over my energy, over my thoughts by sitting in meditation. And so from that, from that foundational place, uh, I was always sort of curious about what, psychedelics would do for me. Cause I didn't have any concerns, you know, read my, read my, uh, my essay and I thought drugs were going to get in the way of me living the life that I wanted, but I was also curious about what it was like and what it would do. And so when I, uh, when I got into college, um, was my first exposure to, uh, psilocybin and it was with a couple of friends on my dorm room floor and we went out and just walked in the woods all night, like eight, it was probably three and a half, four grams, um, walked around and all night. And it was just, it was transformational. I mean, just that one, that one first experience. I didn't, I didn't touch anything really until after high school. I didn't really drink. Uh, I didn't use cannabis in high school either. It wasn't until college where I had a little bit more flexibility. Um, and that was, that was it shaped, it put a little pin like, okay, this, this is a thing for you. This is, this opens up your perception. It's, you can connect with your friends. You can giggle. You can think about yourself in a new way. You can connect with nature in a meaningful way. And that led to a number uh, of additional experiences on LSD, um, MDMA, um, you know, just feeling like I could tap into uh, a level of intelligence that I couldn't see normally. And, you know, I, it was always a part of me from then on. And then as I got into after college and started businesses and um, you know, the, the, there's obviously a correlation and a connection with um, f- using a float tank, getting into altered states of consciousness in a float tank on the natch, not taking anything, but just stewing in your own Uh, brain chemicals by yourself in floating water for an hour that doing that enough times um, providing that service to, you know, now it's like 150,000 people in in this area and and counting. It it was, it was clear to me that it was going to be an important part of my life. Um, Then I had kids, then I started other businesses and coaching and the podcast and the startup that launches next year it's, it's all part of what I believe to be um, a tool for me to be a better person and for my clients to be better people. And the deck is, the deck is a little stacked against us as far as pressure. Um, the, the last couple of years have been crazy and we need better solutions. We need better tools so that we can continue to evolve. And so, you know, now the, the experience that I have, you know, I microdosed this morning, I knew I was going to be having, you know, coaching calls and, and podcasts today. So, you know, do my own regimen there. And I talk openly about it both here on, on the podcast and on social media, but also with my friends and family, I'm still the wacky dude, you know, I'm still, still, still a little, um, off the norm, but now culture is sort of catching up again. And when people see, oh, they just legalized, you know, psychedelics in in the city of Seattle, people got excited. You know how many phone calls and text messages I got? Like, you called it, Sean. You knew it, you know, five years ago. You knew it was going to happen. So it's a big... 
decriminalized, not legalized. De- I'm sorry, decriminalized. You're right. Thank you. That's 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 how uh, in Denver more people got arrested for psilocybin six months after decrim the, the previous ten years. They uh, oh really? Yeah, you, you uh, decrim. It's yeah. not, not not legal. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. No, I I think that um, I like tools at work, um, uh, and and I'm I'm a curious person. You know, my my curiosity is relentless. It's going to continue and. Um, I'm, I'm just getting started. So the, the plant medicine work, the microdosing, you know, the larger trips sort of few and far between and how I work with my, with my clients in that way becomes, um, more and more common. And I think it should be awesome. You're here. He says, <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, cool. So what, uh, before, before we, uh, put a cap on this, um, uh, I'll, I want to ask, uh, a fill in the blank question, which I ask for all of my, my, uh, my guests, but before we do that, uh, where can people learn more? Where, where should we send them, uh, from here? Sure. Uh, if you're interested in learning about mind bloom or just psychedelic therapy or ketamine therapy at large, uh, we have a ton of resources, uh, at mindbloom.com, uh, and a ton of places that we can also send people if they're interested in learning or, you know, being directed to other areas. Uh, and if you're interested in exploring working in psychedelic medicine, uh, you can find our careers page at my bloom as well. Awesome. Very cool. Uh, so this, a uh, fill in the blank question, this can be based on really anything. It doesn't need to be specific to, to ketamine therapy. Now it can just be based on your, your experience as a whole. Um, and you can elaborate as much or as little as you like, but please mm-hmm. fill in the blank. Everyone would benefit from knowing. Uh, everyone would benefit from knowing the fundamental uh, misattribution bias that I mentioned earlier. Uh, everyone would benefit from knowing that they have these cognitive biases that put a filter on them that like, fundamentally that everybody has. Uh, paints like you as the hero and other people as the villain or you as the genius and other people as the imbecile. Uh, and if you can see that every minute of the day can build a lot of uh, compassion and empathy and perspective, even without doing psychedelics, although psychedelics get you there maybe a little faster. That is a first. We have not heard that one. That that That's definitely the first time I've heard that. Um, Dylan, this has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, I want to do it again. I want to go lots down many different paths. Uh, but thank you so much for joining me today on optimal performance. Yeah, this is a blast, Sean. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.